Hi everyone, Mike Hancock here and uh, welcome to our call today. We have Hani Detroit or Hani Detroit or Hani, how, how do you pronounce your surname? Because I know so many people in South Africa with that surname and everyone seems to have a different pronunciation of it. So because we're being inclusive today and sharing about that, how do you pronounce your surname for people from around the world who may go do toot or what? <laughs> Thanks. That's a great opener, Mike. So um, growing up in Cape Town on the Cape Flats, I have been, I, I was raised knowing my surname is Dutoy. When I speak to an Afrikaner, Dansekik is a Dutoit. And when I'm traveling abroad, I say Dutois and people get it. So I think that uh, maybe that speaks to one of the points I want to make about um, uh, cultural intelligence as well, that yeah. we need to be knowing who our audience is and what's going to connect with whom we're speaking to. And so let me connect. I, yeah, I think we, we're going to, it's going to, uh, yeah, Philippe's already happy because he's said. Uh, I'm glad Philippe got that I could say it correctly in French, Philippe. <laughs> it is Genuinely French. my ancestry, but we're going to talk about ancestry as well. Uh, that, this is going to be fascinating. So I'll uh, let me kick off by uh, welcoming Hani to, to the call. Um, just an amazing person doing so much wonderful, wonderful work, not only in South Africa, but abroad as well, in the area of inclusion, di what is broadly covered as diversity that people would understand, but it's not only about race and, you know, colour of skin or anything like that. It's about so many more things. And uh, I also have a problem with my surname too, Hani, and... Uh, and often in South Africa, when Landy's booking a restaurant and she books it under Hancock, they say, uh, how do you spell that? And she says, um, hand, like the hand, and then <laughs> cock, like the chicken. So, and then we all have a good laugh and they, they write it down. So that's, you know, you've got to work with what you've got here for sure. Hani, what's, what's the biggest thing going on in 2021 in, in the inclusivity world generally and in the political and, in, and social world that you're dealing with on a day, daily basis? Tell me what's going on. Yes, um, again, a great opening question. And, and it almost makes me want to jump into the presentation because I've got an image there that I want to use and kind of get everybody's input on that I feel for me speaks to what I'm experiencing in 2021. So if you don't mind, I'm going to answer it with that image. And um, so, so let's let's dive into um, the presentation then, not for any other reason, but to actually look at this image. And for wow. me, Mike, this is what I'm seeing. <laughs> and I'd like to just hear from people in the chat box, like, what, a, what does the image say to them about 2021? And, and maybe if I can just get a couple of responses or as many responses as possible, that would be great to, to see. Yeah, things, definitely. Things help. Help on drowning. Surviving. Drowning. Yes. I don't know if any of you, I need a hand up going under. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, I just arrived at the shore. <laughs> yeah, and 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 when I like that one, um, <laughs> um, still here, treading water. Um, you know the thing that I, 
I'm coming up from the deep. Well, I certainly hope that there are people feel like, I think we keep feeling like we're coming out of it and then we discover we're not. And so struggling and needing a line, I suppose, and alone. And that's what I think, um, you know, you, you opened up with that message of condolences. And I think that in the space of the trauma that we are experiencing on so many different levels, and then this thing, Mike, I mean, when last have I been to an in-person event with you? This thing that we're connecting in this way, and we say we're connecting, and we've got all these clever tricks for creating intimacy in virtual spaces, but it's not quite the connection that we want. And, um, but this, this image also reminds me of a poem, um, and you know, I'm big on poetry and painting and art and that kind of thing. And a poem I did in high school, I think, by a guy called Stevie Smith. And the poem was called Not Waving, But Drowning. There's a band That's actually a really... called Not Waving, Drowning in Australia, I think, Philippe may correct me, but uh, yeah, so, so I think the, the poem must be very well known. And, and, and here's the thing, the last line said, I was much too far all my life and not waving but drowning. And, and this idea that some of us are really putting this cheerful face on, some of us are really pushing through, we will not let this get the better of us. And we're not even in touch with the degree of support we need. We're not really taking care of ourselves because uh, we are so busy showing that we've not yet been conquered. And so we're doing the waving when we're actually drowning. And I think there's a lot of that going on as well. So that's really very much um, what I'm seeing in the, um, in the, pe with the people I'm working with, with the leaders I'm working with. And then this desperation, this confusion around um, how, do we, how do we move forward? And here's the, the funny thing, Mike. I call myself a specialist. I don't call myself an expert. And there's a difference for me between the two because I really don't want people to think that I'm coming to this conversation with answers. I'm really coming to this conversation with the framework from how we, for how we can navigate what's really tough and what's really confronting in a very human way. And that means that we don't need to pretend we're amazing, extraordinary superhumans. We can be vulnerable. We can be real about what we're struggling with. And we can create a container of, of care to have um, really courageous conversations. And like I say, explore, navigate. How do we get back to shore? Um, so that's just one of the, the, the images I wanted to show. But I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now and maybe just rejoin into where that um what other questions that prompts from you before we yeah, go in? Well, I think it, it prompts for me one thing that uh, I've got two things I want to kick around with you just at the moment. Um, which one will I go for first? I'll go for this one. Um, you mentioned two words, which I think are really important, Hani, which is courageous conversations. So let's unpack that a, a bit. What does that mean? And what does it mean specifically for the, the listeners on this call? So I think that um, what it means for me is we speak about courage as being that, that space where we get we're afraid, we acknowledge we're afraid, and we still move forward. The fear doesn't stop us from taking action. The fear doesn't stop us from leaning in. We know it's going to be uncomfortable. 
we know we may not um, look graceful while we're doing it. And we know that we um, may stumble and fall. Um, you know, we, we had a fantastic PSA a um, conversation last night at the Cape Chapter. Where we were talking about speaking competitively and what it takes and how much a different beast it is than what I enjoy doing. <laughs> And, um, and, and some people will think it's a question of courage, but I think there's a distinction, you know, between the, the, the mind space you go into when you go into performance mode and the courage that's required when you go into an authentic real mode. Like, let's mm. get real. Let's talk human to human. And I think they're two different kinds of courage, maybe. Um, or maybe I distinguish between the bravery, like somebody going into battle with their shield and their armor on. And somebody taking that armor off to be in a real conversation. And so those, that's for me, is the space when we're talking about a world that's so polarized. And, and none of us can deny that we're in a, in a polarized world. In my own family, um, whom I struggle to love dearly, not the people <laughs> I live with, but my, you know, the people we come from often the, the people who are our biggest um, teachers, mentors, and as Landy likes to tell me, a reason to appreciate why we are who we are. But that's a challenge sometimes, right? Because in my own family, there's this huge um, diversity of how we're engaging COVID, what protocols we are and aren't upholding. And um, it takes courage to engage that conversation and say to my mom and my dad that the reality is my husband as a deputy head at a high school is responsible for protocols in his school. If he's come into contact with people who are symptomatic, he can't go and do his work for 14 days. And so can you please back off when you've got symptoms, <laughs> even though we love you, right? But in a culture, and, and I come from a, a Muslim culture where my family, my, my, mom, my mother and my dad, father especially, believe I've just got to do what they tell me. And so to have that conversation with him, it's a courageous conversation. Mm. And so there are layers, right, from how do we have these conversations that seem to be bigger than we could ever impact. I mean, I certainly don't um, believe that the work I'm doing is going to end racism in the world. I certainly hope that in the interactions that I do have, they're real enough to shift perspective and to have people connect with their own humanity a little more deeply, a little more authentically, and that that allows them to let more diverse people into their inner circles. Because I think there's a great strength in, in, in diversity and, and I'm not only talking race here or cultural beliefs or religious beliefs or, or anything like that, but, you know, travelling as we've done over the years and, you know, pulling the... I've been to 108 countries card. I definitely see that the more people are different, the more that they're the same. But people have that really interesting, um, just slightly unique perspective, which can often really help you get from one level to another level. And it's, it's fascinating because as you travel and, and a lot of people will talk to Landy and say, oh, you're from South Africa, apartheid, Rhino, all of that sort of stuff. And she really hits them back. She, um, which really floors them. And I like this because, you know, and I'll give you an example for those of you that are listening to this that don't live in South Africa. Um, last night I was walking the dog, out walking the dog. Um, three women run past me. Um, 
a white girl, a black girl, and a colored girl. Okay, and they're laughing and, and sharing jokes. Last weekend, we're in a restaurant and we see black and white couples sitting at the same table, having a bottle of champagne, chatting away like anything. Um, then there's another table. And on that table, there's a guy who's flappingly gay sitting there with a black girl and a transvestite, right? And so South Africa appreciates diversity more than any other country in the world. And I, I challenge people who live in Australia and New Zealand to find that. You know, if you live in New Zealand, how many Maori friends do you have? I mean, seriously, um, if you live in Australia, you know, how many Asian friends do you have? How many Aboriginal friends do you have? South Africa actually has this very, very right. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's right at a, at a macro level. The government and the news in South Africa will tell you, you know, there's a whole lot of race tension and all this sort of stuff. And it's there from a political point of view. But I find that for the person on the street, Harney, that it's not the case. I find that people are very gracious to each other and people just want to, to really make this rainbow nation that South Africa work. And I'm interested to ask you the question of um, why is this working in South Africa? Not why isn't it working, but why is this working? Why is it that, you know, you yourself have got friends of all different races, colours and, and descriptions and, and why are some other countries still not embracing it, this and, and fighting off, you know, the Chinese at their borders or whatever they're doing in their, in their own place? Why is that happening? Great question. Um, I did say that I didn't come here with all the answers. And <laughs> one of the things... But you're a specialist, so we love you. <laughs> so, but one of the, the, the thoughts that I have on that is that we've had... Um, Going all the way back, and, and that's also one of the slides I want to show you. Going all the way back to the um, origins of the, the this country, and and here, the, here in the Cape, we very much have um, the first settlements, right? The first European settlements um, are here in the Cape. Um, but what's interesting to note is that that with that came um, Dutch slaves. The Dutch brought slaves from their various colonies, right? A lot of people don't know, and, and I want to show you the slide um, in, my, in my presentation, although it comes up later on and we'll talk to it, but a lot of people don't know that the people were brought here as slaves from the Far East with the Mandelas of their era. Yep. So, the and, my, and, and I've got ancestors going back to that um, heritage, to that um, lineage. And then um, I've also got ancestors, which is where the Dutwa, Dutoy, Dutoit comes from, right? I've also got ancestors that were French Huguenots who fled France into um, Holland, jumped on the Dutch ships and then came here. And, and I saw you, you were recently in Franchuk at the a monument to the French Huguenots. And so my ancestors date back to those two Dutch, uh, those two French brothers who came on that Dutch ship. And here's the interesting thing. Only one of them had kids. So all us Dutois, Dutois in South Africa actually can be traced back to that one guy. So I've often, um, when I meet up with other Dutois who consider themselves Afrikaners, then I often say, hey, cousin, you know, we, we both hail from wherever. And in the 80s, I can tell you honestly, because I was, it was cheeky. It was just downright cheeky to say something like that. How dare you? And people would often put me on my place. 
and tell me how dare I suggest that I was related to them. And nowadays, when I do that, people ask more questions, you know, in the last 10 years, people ask more questions. And they, they want to find what's that background story. Some of them go check it out to see check if I'm lying or not. And, and so that's interesting because what it points to is that when we talk about not the, only the indigenous people of this country, but all the many different cultures that were, brought, that were brought here for different reasons. I mean, I also have Indian ancestry. And the Indians of South Africa were brought here as indentured workers. And that's maybe just like one degree above slavery because you were contracted for basically your lifetime to work either for the Dutch or the British. So I've got that history as well, that ancestry as well. And they were brought here um, 150 years after the people who were brought from the Indonesian, Batavian, Malaysian islands. And so when you get that history, you get that people were intermarrying and living in shared communities a long time ago. And we, I had somebody call me because we're going into Eastern Earth. There's going to be this burst in Cape Town of everybody eating pickled fish. And... Pickled fish is a typical Capetonian thing, and there's a huge dispute about whether it's part of the Dutch heritage or whether it's part of the Cape Malay heritage. And the reason is this dispute is when you taste the spices, you know that's not Dutch cooking, right? Exactly. So this infusion, this cultural infusion has been happening for hundreds of years here. It's not, and this is why it's so ridiculous for anybody to purport a pure race. I couldn't for anybody agree more to hold on to that kind of thinking. I couldn't agree more with you. And, I, and I, I've got another question, but I, just a, an aside, uh, you know, a number of people on this call already know Landy and I did an ancestry tour and actually I've got a book coming out next year. It'll be on ancestry. It's three quarters of the way written now, but with my new editor, boy, does she do a lot of edits. And, um, but the, how this came about, I'm not sure how many people know this, but I want to give this sort of as a lead up to my question. We were in Scotland, uh, just north of Inverness in 2015, and we were at a bed and breakfast, guest house, and uh, we we're having breakfast and sitting across the table for a very small place was um, a lawyer and his wife from Philadelphia, and they were black. And um, I said to him, so what are you guys doing in Scotland? He said, I'm tracing my ancestry. And the look on my face, I must have gone like, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I know, dude, I'm black. I go... Yeah, so <laughs> tell us the story. He said, well, actually, he said, when I, he said, we did our DNA kit and when we did the swabs and sent it off, he said, I'm 40% from the Middle East. So I'm, I'm Arabic, actually. That's my main thing. I'm 30% Scottish, but I'm only 12% African, but look at me, right? And so he said, I actually feel, I've always felt more association with Scotland than with my roots in Africa. I've never ever wanted to go to Africa, but I've always wanted to go to Scotland. So that got us, you know, doing our DNA. We did it straight away and Lundy found out she's Sami, Eskimo, Kazakhstan, French, Huguenot, etc., cetera, um, and 2% Bantu. And uh, um, I'm a bit more of a pure Viking Celtic. But um, from that aspect, I, that made me understand exactly what you're saying. And then I read some experiments because I was researching for a book I was writing and they did this experiment with the university in America where they got a whole bunch of white kids, put them in, in a room and said, what's your ancestry? And they said British, Irish, Scottish primarily. They did all of their DNA. A third of them's ancestry was black African and the blonde haired blue eyed girl was 
mostly black African of ancestral roots. So it's fascinating, really changed their perspective. So my question is now leading on from the ancestry thing is, what can we do? And when I say we, I'm talking about specifically the types of people that are on this call to really um, benefit from diversity, not only in cultures, but in beliefs and religions and the whole range of that. What can we do to benefit our businesses and our lives? Maybe do you have two or three actions? Yes, I, I see that a number of people have already put in there that they do have um, diverse circles, um, friendship circles, social circles. I think that that is something that because we are um, in the global speaking industry that we do, we tend to network very broadly and very widely. And so, um, so that is definitely an action we can amplify. And the A in my, 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 my human framework is about amplifying. Um, how do we amplify the diversity of our own circles? But the, I think the other thing that I think we can amplify is the narratives, the narratives that we tell. Because unfortunately, these personal narratives are often at odds with mainstream media narratives. And this is part of what I think when we're in business, we need to be countering or challenging all the time. Um, and so another slide that I just want to share with you quickly is the, um, is the, yeah, it's this one. Let me just get to it. I like it. Um, While you're putting that up, I'm just uh, going to acknowledge Moira's comment in the chat. She says, forget tokenism, educate yourself and build partnership model relationships. And I think uh, that, that's really good. But probably, you know, it's, it's not easy for a lot of people. I mean, Philippe, sorry about this, but uh, I was born in Melbourne. And when I went to school, you know, we celebrated giving, you know, what we could to anybody who wasn't a pure bred Australian. I mean, racism was bred into us in the schools. I mean, I can use all the names. We didn't used to use people's names. We used to call them by whatever their race was. You know, so if you were a South African, you were a Yapi. That's what you were. If you were <laughs> a, 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 from England, you're a Pom, right? So it goes, yes. it goes on. That's how it was. So, but that, I'm so glad that that's all changed because um, it's just, it's just so wrong and it just holds you back in life so much. Um, yeah, a lot of stories you can tell about that. Well, you're a, you're a Frenchman living in Australia, so I can, uh, you'd be a frog, right? So, <laughs> you know, but, but Mike, those some terms, name. But those terms are actually so um, critically part of the answer to the question because one of the things we are still dealing with in South Africa, especially in our more elite schools, is we're finding, and this came out in a very ugly way last year, we're finding that that kind of um, labeling is happening. The, the lack of diversity in terms of the staff that are seeing themselves as educators and academics, the lack of diversity when it comes to leadership of those schools, those are reinforcing old ideas that people like myself who were labeled as colored in the system are working class. And people who are white South Africans are leaders, are specialists, are experts. And so that still does play out 
in business, in corporates especially. It still does play out in our education system. And so when you can matriculate with, um, you know, six days, the matric results are coming out today. And we're going to see this explosion again of how broken our education system is, how, um, and then the media narrative is not going to be looking at what is everything? What are all the narratives? What are all the realities? What are all the social inequities that those kids with four A's from the townships transcended to be at the level they're at, to apply for the same university positions as the guy, the guy who's got every possible facility in a top school year in the southern suburbs, in the leafy suburbs, where they've got five rugby fields and six tennis courts and a music band and, you know, famous artists training them in all these different um, skills. So the, 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 the playing field is still not level. And, and I think what I want to share and why I wanted to share the slide with you is because this is a recent one. And, and Mike, this is, this is your, um, this was this week's media, right? Um, the guy who wasn't allowed to wear his high ticket in parliament and, and the big ordeal that eventually allowed. So, so here we are, 2021. And then there's this, the, for me, the access that people on this call can do is how do we shift gears from what's happening in the systemic, um, where systemic racism is happening, where the structures are still exclusionary, where the structures are still unequal. And how do we shift gear? Because when we go into this space, into this discussion, there's a whole lot of different emotions. Like, I want to show a few slides and I'd like people in the chat group to say, so what are the emotions that rise for you that are immediately there for you when you see these kinds of issues which are in mainstream media? Um, another one is, okay, Abel, this is actually an image out of my book, Mike, my kid's book on Just Like Me, right? And, and it's the whole question of do we give equal access to the aspirations for people with different abilities? Um, and if kids could be taught that, then how much better? Uh, and then, of course, there's the Black Lives Matter movement, which we saw protests, we saw riots, and we saw so much hostility and anger um, around all of this. And then... I just want to go back um, a bit first. Sorry for some reason. Before I go there, so I just want to get in the in the chat group when we see those mainstream media issues. What are some of the emotions that ride, that rise for? Um, yes, gender diversity, of course, um, that's necessary as well. All the issues weren't included in these few slides, but um, we'll 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 talk about how we access some of this um, in a moment. In in this, this program that I'm, that I'm now making available called the Human Framework. So some of the uh, emotions around the issues when we see them in the media. Frustration, says Ian. Um, any others uh, that come up for people? Pain. Um, yeah, often we, we, we experience pain. Um, and is that a pain that, that moves us forward or pain that keeps us stuck? Because I think for sometimes, sometimes some of us in a state of overwhelm, there's a bit of paralysis that happens around like, hopeless what what can we do um the powerlessness of it so so for a lot of people that's why we don't engage these issues is because we're seeing it at the systemic level and what i'm um, saying is that yes we need to be real about what's the impact of the exclusionary practices that still exist in society so while we've got all those things happening on a personal level mike all the diversity all the um uh interactions between people of different groups we still have 
um, fear of doing it wrong. So I, I'll thank you so much, Heather. Embarrassment, says Nicola. Um, I really appreciate those two because that's why when I take on these programs, I want a diverse group of people in the, in the, the room with me. And, and so far, we've been averaging 10, 12 people on a course at a time. And I want to make sure that there are people from different parts of the world and people with very different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. So we can lean into all those different emotions because here's the thing, any one of those, the powerlessness, the embarrassment, um, some people speak about guilt as well. This, this thing about white guilt has become a very popular topic um, where people think, okay, my ancestors were responsible, I'm to blame. And that's what the Black Lives Matter is about, a movement is about, it's blaming white people. And so what we really want to look at then is to say, instead of talking about the systemic divisions, we acknowledge it. We get that it raises all these things, but let's just look at what actually happens to people who are experiencing exclusion, whether that's around gender, whether that's around uh, being, uh, you spoke about transvestites, whether, whether that's about people being trans, whether that's about people um, being a black or Maori or whatever, the exclusionary experience. And so amazing neuroscience studies have been done to show some fascinating things. And this image, um, indicates the pain centered in the brain. And so we've got social pain and we've got physical pain, but they light up in the same center. And then the scores that are given, like what's the degree or extent of the pain when we're in social distress. And by social dis distress, we, we usually mean exclusion and rejection. And I studied um, the neuroscience of trust with Judith Glaser in New York. And, and her findings were that the pain of social rejection is equivalent to the physical pain of being in a car crash. We don't think about that when we're engaging each other, when we're dismissive of people and subtle things, you know, the, the kinds of things that are happening in our schools that are sometimes even happening in our professional networks that are sometimes even happening in our corporates. Um, I've had some weird experiences with CEOs. You know, Mike, where you said to me, um, have the CEO introduce you when you're going to do the, um, yep. you're going to be working with your team, do this thing about, um, uh, it's a credibility thing, right? You said it's about positioning yourself and all of that. So I had a fantastic session with a um, C-suite team of about 20 people, a company in Johannesburg about two years ago, set everything up, took the coaching from Lundy, sent through exactly how I wanted to introduce me. We set up all the agreements. On the morning of the session, just before he introduces me, he leans over and he says to me, by the way, I just want to tell you, there's no way that I'm going to be singing your praises so you can introduce yourself. And I was livid because I got that he didn't understand that in an environment where that C-suite only had one other person of color in it, I needed him to endorse me to his team. And then I just thought, stuff it. I'm not going to introduce myself besides saying my name and I'm just going to go through the presentation and they will get who I am as I do it. And I had people coming up to me during the breaks each time somebody else saying to me, so where are you from? Like, where did you study? Um, you know, tell me your background. And, and this kind of thing is still happening in the boardrooms and people don't get the subtlety 
of what the assumption is that they are showing. So this pain of social rejection is a real, it's a physical pain. It lives at a somatic level in the cells. So the trauma that generations need to heal from that kind of experience is also real. And then the other interesting thing that this research shows is that the need to belong. And here's the irony because our brain's function is to just keep us alive, right? Keep us in survival mode, which is why we develop biases. We develop biases so we can quickly filter out friend or foe. Am I safe or not? Is this person right or wrong? Is this person good or bad? We, we, the brain's designed for our survival, but interestingly enough, our need to belong is stronger than our need for safety, for physical safety. And so that's an interesting thing, that the emotional and psychological safety is actually more key and that that's what our biases naturally protect us from. So it's very, very interesting when we get into the neuroscience to understand that our hard wiring is actually what breeds racism. And if we don't bring that into our awareness, then we can't say, so how do I actively go and change things here? And here's the other interesting thing that I think a lot of you will enjoy when others show us just love. And I mean, it's a smile. It's a look without judgment. It's just respect and honoring us. I mean, others do that. It lights up the same centers in the brain, the same pleasure centers as when we're eating chocolate, for those of you who are addicts, when we're having sex, or when we're on those drugs that people will pay so much money for. So it's really quite a fascinating thing to see the driver that belonging is. And so my question for, for, um, for people were, you know, this is usually the response when we're talking about all those systemic issues. The response is like crazy rage, lays the monster. You know, Mike, I saw the thread, for example, on your and Lundy's page when Lundy posted her bold post about her admiration for Trump. And I mean, your it lit up, right? It lit up with everybody's vitriol. And, you know, there were these extreme views, either rah, 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 or oh my God, this makes me want to unfriend you. I don't want to, I can't believe it. I'm shocked. I'm horrified. All of those kinds of responses. And that's my point. This is, this image for me depicts that kind of response. Absolutely. If we don't have a capacity to engage differently and I'm saying what's the alternative and the alternative for me showed up in a beautiful um, you spoke about traveling it showed up for me in a beautiful experience in um, I stayed at Ada camp which is a um, a, ref a Palestinian refugee camp outside Bethlehem Ada camp is known as the most tear gassed city in the world and here, this boy that I met, Aboud, is holding up the canister. And if you look, if I zoomed in, you'd see that it actually says made in the USA on the, on the canister. But Aboud was this adorable young person who just wanted to tell us his family history. But he said, please, please, you must come with me to my father's shop. And this shop is called the key to return. And in the image next to it, we've got the, the huge key there that they call the key to return. So these are refugees in their own country. And their whole thing is how do we return to our, the villages we actually come from, the villages we've been displaced from. 
but I boot is 16 and he tells me, no, no, no. What my father's shop is about is we take the canisters. And if you look closely to the image, and I know it's quite dark, but we take the canisters and we make jewelry out of the canisters. And we make art out of these tear gas canisters because we want to make something beautiful out of all these ugly experiences. It's a very poignant um, set, a couple of photos and, and a really poignant story too. And Honey, I was just telling this uh, uh, to somebody earlier today, and it reminds me of uh, many years ago, 2008. And, and I think this is the point of what we're trying to do here is that 2008 was the year that in New Zealand where there was a change of prime minister, John Key became the new prime minister. And I was running a, uh, an entrepreneur event in the same hotel as his very first press meeting the morning after he was voted in. We didn't know he was going to be there, but we saw all the, I saw all the cameras come in and people were saying, John Key's going to be next door and everything like this. So um, you know what it's like when you're presenting something, and particularly when it's a two-day seminar, you never get time to go to the toilet, right? So what you do is you set for folks who aren't presenters, you set people a long exercise that's going to take about 10 minutes so that you can dash off to the toilet and remember to turn your microphone off. So as I, as I came back from the toilet, I realised that um, their press... Uh, launch was was coming to an end so I grabbed everybody out of our event there was about 80 something of us there and I lined them up down the hall on either side about 40 on either side and so the doors open boom security comes out there's John Key and he looks at this line of people on either side of the corridor which is probably about 20 meters long and he's it's his first day as prime minister he's like pumped like you know it's the pinnacle of his career so he just starts shaking hands on the right and on the left, et cetera, shakes hands. And I'm standing at the end, sort of arms crossed like this, just watching this. And he comes, walks straight down. He gets to me and goes, so who are you? <laughs> and I said, I introduced myself and I said, I said, hey, John, we're just running an event next door. He said, what sort of event? I said, well, it's an entrepreneur training event. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to bring everybody out and, you know, congratulate you on getting the job. And everybody here is entrepreneurs. And he said something to me, Hani, that um, is one of the reasons we do what we do today. He said, Mike, I want you to know politicians like me are never going to change the world. We've got no hope. He said, and big corporates are never going to change the world. He said, it's entrepreneurs like these people here who are going to have more effect on society than I am, even though I'm now Prime Minister of New Zealand so I want to thank you guys and thank everybody here for doing what you do. And then we shook hands and off he went. And so the point I'm bringing to this conversation is we can't rely on the politicians to um, become more inclusive, whether it's gender inclusivity, as Angela said, whether it's um, race inclusivity. You know, Landy and I had a, you know, we had a saying that after Black Lives Matter came out, we said fat lives matter. Okay, <laughs> you know, so, you know, every life matters. It's great that this is being brought to the forefront and I'm not criticizing it, but every, every life is equal. It doesn't matter, black, white, blue, gray, you know, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, and it's, it's fascinating. So whenever I get anybody who is particularly of one religion, I always ask them, um, you know, if they're, if they're a, a devout Christian, say, have you read the Quran? No, they say, they always say no. I say, well, I have. So I can tell you there's a lot less violence in the Quran than in the Bible. Oh, is that right? Why don't you read it? And then some of them do. And then they come back and they go, oh, actually, it's, it's really similar, isn't it? And 
and things like that. And then I say, have you read the Bhagavad Gita? Right. So I have. So, you know, if we're going to have this inclusive society, it, it has to start from us. It has to start from the people on this call making a decision to be more inclusive. So I see Philippe in his normal, lovely way has changed his name now to the frog on the call, but I wish you'd change it back, Philippe, because that's not how we want to remember you. But um, also I must apologize yeah. to Philippe because the we call in Australia, when I was brought up, you call French frogs because French eat a lot of frog legs. But in fact, Philippe, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you are the second biggest consumer of frog's legs on the planet. So we should be calling Japanese people frogs because they're the biggest consumer of frog's legs on, on the planet. So Hani, what do you think we should do? What's the triggers for us to, to stay more aware um, of being sensitive, not only to other cultures, but um, to disabled people? I love that, that, that slide of, you know, I want to be a ballerina too, because we often forget that. And, and people, for instance, in New Zealand, I don't know if you know this, but you can get, the last time I checked, so don't, don't quote me on this, you can get one year's salary paid by the government if you hire a disabled person. So if you've got somebody who you need to do some social media or program or something like that, you can get a full-time person with their salary paid for. So why, why not start to look elsewhere just because, you know, they might be wheelchair bound or, you know, something else might be going for them. Why not look elsewhere? Honey, what can we do? So, so I like what Philippe also put in there. He said curiosity question mark. And so I, I hope there's no curiosity about frogs and snails, but more about the topic, because that is what we, what I'm, um, inviting people to. But now the question is, curiosity is not the same as, you know, I once had a Russian student. And so I've been into this. Just as, as, when I first left high school, my first thing I, of course, I dived into at university was comparative religious studies because my father was very dogmatic and I wanted to have this broad perspective world and every religion fascinated me. But here's the interesting thing. I was naturally looking for overlaps. I was always looking for where the commonalities. And I found that very, very um, inspiring to, to see, again, as you started out saying, the more we um, travel, the more we engage other cultures, the more we just arrive at our shared humanity. But if we don't challenge our current narratives, if we don't challenge our beliefs, then how do we get there? So I, I want to ask everybody to put in the chat group quickly, when you look at this image, what do you think you're looking at? Um, and so just in the chat group, what do you think you're looking at? You know, I love art. This is not my own painting, but what do you think you're looking at in this um, picture? And you're probably going to get it like, because I don't think it's too obscure, but let's yeah, um, just let's just see some of your stuff. Or maybe you can unmute and just shout out. <laughs> looking at Mike's shirt, definitely. Map of the world. Fantastic, Philippe. Philippe's always so brilliant and sharp. Philippe, give everybody else a chance. So um, <laughs> thank you. It absolutely is a map of the world, but it's a map of the world, and we usually look at it this way, right? And so, for me, what our uh, what what I want people to engage in is ask, what are some of the ways that we can challenge our perspective? So, is it curiosity? Yes, but it's also unlearning. So I said to you about my heritage. Now, if I believe what I was taught at school, because I was allowed to go to a school only for colored people. And my father taught me to reject the word colored. So how does that feel? How do you grow up going to a school that said, 
by the colored department and you, your parents tell you, you're not colored, you're human. That's all you are, is you're human. And so going again into that ancestry, like you said, Mike, I discovered this um, legal, royal heritage from my mom's side. And then this um, French Huguenot from my dad's side. And then there's some Arab and Turk ancestry in there somewhere as well. But here's the thing, if I go into that and I get that those people that were labeled colored by the apartheid government actually have a, history, a rich history of political resistance, actually have a rich history of owning their heritage and their culture and being proud leaders in their place, then I can start to step into my leadership. Then I can start to say, actually, political resistance is part of my DNA. And I want to bring that forward, but in the most humane possible way. And then the other thing to do is like, how do we unlearn the stuff we've been taught? So I've got a quick quiz for everybody. And I'd like to hear, to see some responses in the chat. And um, Philippe, you're only allowed to respond third. So, <laughs> so the first question that I have for you, and this is about just challenging some of that, that unlearning is what's the oldest or where, what or where is the oldest university in the world? And you can put any of your thoughts or ideas in the chat box. Mike, you've been to 108 countries. You're not allowed to answer. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, Egypt, Morocco. You were right, Morocco. I think it beats the one in Egypt. It's in Fez, absolutely. Kwari Yun University. And it's been running ever since it was open. And here's the other fascinating thing a lot of people don't know. It was founded by a woman. So talk about the gender place that people hold and all the misconception about the leadership of of women in muslim countries and in islamic tradition so here's the second one for you who was the richest man in history ever quick quiz any ideas and okay come on you don't it's okay if you get it wrong i'd love you to get it wrong of course <laughs> Solomon, Andrew Carnegie. Yeah, a lot of thank you, Sarah. Mansa Musa, also of the Empire of Mali. So a lot of the, the things that we challenge, and I've got like a 15-question quiz that I put out to people to just go and look up stuff that we're not going to find in our usual um, in our usual. In our education system, we're not going to find it if we're reading the same genre all the time, if you're reading the same authors all the time, if you're speaking to the same people, or you're only visiting the places where people are more like you when you travel. So it's, it's a, um, th that for me, is, those are actions people can take. Go and meet a friend, even if it's somebody who sits on the corner of a street looking for a job, go and sit down and make a new friend and just get interested. And so when I say curious, I don't mean like the Russian student I had many years ago when he looked at my scarf, said to me, and what's with your bandana? You know, that, that's, and I get he was curious and that was the English he had, but there are other ways we can get curious as well, where we're not necessarily interrogating somebody, but we're genuinely interested in how's the history and the story different and similar to ours. Um, and, and I think that that's a powerful way for us to start shifting. Look at your clients, you know, um, are your clients diverse? 
are your clients coming to you with one of one of the great testimonials that I love that's on my website for my course at the moment is by a woman who I just had she cried on a conversation last week. Um, and it's a, a Latina woman in Florida who's been a proud, what she calls New Yorican her entire life, Puerto Rican woman born and raised in New York. And because of her parents wanting her to have the best possible chance, they didn't want her to talk Spanish in public. So she has Spanish as a mother tongue, but it was kind of a part of identity that she suppressed. So a big part of what we deal with, and, and, and somebody who raised the gender issues as well, um, we, had a, we had a trans person on one of our courses recently, and she immediately, and a Muslim woman on top of it, and she immediately wanted to say to, to the people, the other, there were two other Muslim women on, on the call, including myself, and she said, you know, I'm so tired of how my community rejects me and sees me, and, and so I'm very hesitant to even talk about this, given there are two Muslims on the school. And so I leaned in and asked her, are you perhaps making assumptions about how we see you? Because you haven't asked me before. You haven't engaged with me before about that. So are you rejecting this part of yourself and transferring it onto the rest of us and now not giving us a chance to even support you in what it is you're navigating? And so this is the depth that we could go to in these conversations where we want to look at what are the assumptions we're making in the way we engage people, in the way we select our clients. In companies, they like using the, the line, you know, this person's not a good culture fit for us. We have this particular type of culture. What does that mean? You know, what could that person bring us that we don't perhaps already have? What could that person offer that would make us even more unique? And so we're not asking questions that allow for an expansion of our inclusionary practices or an expansion of our inclusive leadership. And, and that for me is the kind of curiosity, but it's gotta be a curiosity that's coupled with care and compassion. Because if care and compassion isn't part of it, then we start to ask questions with a disregard for the discomfort of people. Um, or do we have permission? to go to that space. And so I'm very much a fan of working with people who want to have those uncomfortable conversations, who are aware it's gonna get uncomfortable, um, but it's not because we're making you wrong. It's not because, and if you make mistakes, the other person said you are afraid of making mistakes. So this cancel culture that's so big, I said I was gonna to speak to that, that's so big on social media, is a way of telling people you can't make mistakes. You have to be, what, politically correct? What the hell is that? So we're not inviting people to learn and grow and explore and discover. And so we're going to keep people stuck and sticking to people who are just like me. And that's not what the book Just Like Me means. The book Just Like Me is how do we discover that no matter how different we thought we are, we're actually just the same. That's so beautifully said. I, I just take my hat off to you, honey. Just brilliant. Um, and I, I love the the cancel culture is a really interesting one because, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast. Alandi was listening to a podcast, and we both listened to it the other day. Um, and I, it was from somebody who's, you know, being in the American political things and saying, okay. So they can cancel the president of the United States. And, and now they're going to close down 
any single person can be closed down now. Your friends can close you down if you don't want to go swimming at the same swimming place they go down. So they just cancel you. Facebook cancels. In Australia, I don't know if people are aware of what's happening in Australia at the moment, but Facebook's refusing to pay Australian media for the news. So um, basically, Australia is, is fighting Facebook. So Facebook are closing down Australia at the moment. So, um, you know, one of, uh, one of my friends, uh, a relative died, and she can't even share the obituary notice on Facebook. They closed down. She couldn't close. She shouldn't, couldn't share details of the funeral. They blocked her profile because she was sharing news. So this is the ridiculous cancel culture in which we live. And I think some of those things are, are really going to see their ass because there's going to be a good way of, of the world sort of karma is, is a great way of sorting things out. Um, Hani, we've got a few minutes left and there's some good questions here. Yes, I um, see Philippe's Angel one. Yeah, I'll, I'll go up to Angela's, which was okay. just saying, what was, what's the best way to ask a question to open with curiosity? Mm. So I, I like that. I, I think that maybe when people have expressed something that um, you don't understand or that speaks to a very strongly held belief or value, I think that a great one is maybe not exactly a question, but to just lean in and say, tell me more about that. Why does that matter to you? What about that matters to you? And, and I think those are great ways to be interested in understanding and unpacking, um, letting people share rather than make a judgment of what they said and then engage your own judgment. Because I think that's how we get stuck in a loop sometimes. Um, so you mm. meant that, or did you, did you mean that? And now you've already made your interpretation. But if I say, tell me more about that, um, what do you mean by that? Um, what, what, um, what about that matters to you? I think those are curious questions that allow us to get to the person's um, values even, to get to the person's uh, and to understand. Because I think when we hear what matters to people, we can find some way then to engage that thing. Because often the same things matter to us, even though we express them differently. So... Um, Oh wow, I'm seeing Angela's response in the in the chat. This is such an amazing group. Um, the guy in a wheelchair, how he earned his wheels. The story was he tried to to hotwire a train. He was very confident and not a normal question. It just felt right. Yeah, so that's that's great curiosity. And 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 Hani, what you say is interesting. If you know, you mentioned Landy's post of a few weeks ago, which I know got a couple of hundred comments um, when she reached out and she she basically said. You know, um, she wants to acknowledge Trump for the job that he did as president. Um, and it's only one person, one person only, who's a client of ours, um, actually contacted her and said, I don't agree with you, but I'm really interested to find out why you thought that. Every other single person asked her to justify a position. And those of you that looked at that post will notice that Landy said nothing else, not because she's scared, she couldn't give a damn. But she said, nobody's, nobody, I don't have to justify my position mm. to the greater world on mm. Facebook. I'm mm. simply putting out an acknowledgement. If anybody's curious enough, be that client, friend or foe, to actually ask me why, then contact me and I'll actually go through my reasoning for that, as she did with this girl. And this girl in the end said, 
wow, you've really opened my eyes to a couple of things I didn't know. I still don't agree with you, but now I understand where you're coming from. So everything, everything's perfect, right? As it should be. Everybody should be allowed to have their opinion, right or wrong. I don't agree with a lot of people who just think what they learn on CNN is actually the gospel truth either. But um, that doesn't make me like them any less. Let's go to Philippe's question, because I know you want to deal with that one in the last five minutes. Can you define compassion? Yeah, so the H in the human is about dropping into the hard space because all the stuff you spoke about now, um, Mike, this whole way we enter into debate, the whole way we express opinion, the whole way that we want to get academic about stuff, and then we want to go into the jargon and the terminology of everything. And that doesn't breed connection. That just polarizes us further and further and further. And so we can't bond in that type of conversation. So I tend to um, invite people to a space where when I say compassion, I'm saying, let's take the conversation into the heart center. Let's drop out of our heads, not because we're not going to think, but because we don't want to be in that survival mode where we're protecting our own beliefs. We don't want to be in that survival um, uh, neuro space where we need to um, be defensive and we go into debate and argument. And let's face it, in our education systems, most of the most schools have a debating team. You know, they don't have a team for human connection and they don't have a team for compassion. So these are not the taught skills of how to engage each other. We want to win stuff. We want to win arguments. We want to have the right opinion. And I'm saying if we drop out of our head space into our heart space, then there's a lot of stuff we can feel in the conversation. And then we're feeling through the conversation with each other. And when we're there and we listen from that space, it's also a different type of listening. It's not the active analytical listening for information. It's really listening for where your heart and my heart resonates and there's a lot of neuroscience to back the synchronicity of the you know the data that flows from the heart to the brain is far more abundant than the data that flows from the brain to the heart and interestingly enough the heart's the only organ that can override a brain instruction so this whole idea of holding the conversation in the heart space um, for me is powerful but what's interesting is the word courage which I spoke about at the beginning for courageous conversations comes from the French and the Latin words which speak about heart it's your heart but similarly the word passion is about the suffering of the heart and so compassion is when we can feel into that pain with each other now Judith Glaser used to say, no, 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 don't say compassion, because when we're in too much compassion with each other and we're feeling too much with each other, we light up each other's pain centers and that can paralyze us. What about empathy? Um, and then she switched it around and said, if we define compassion as being a willing to move people from the space of pain to an action, and for me, the first action is the conversations of courage and compassion then we can ripple that out. If we have a safe container to have those kinds of conversations and really go into the stories of our own identity that we reject, this is regardless of what gender, race, or religion you are, we each have aspects of ourselves we reject. And then when it's mirrored by others, we call it social rejection. But we haven't healed that part first. And so this, the conversation's got to be there in the heart space. And then the heart practices, right? And I'm sure Philippe, Will, will be clear about the hard practices in meditation, the hard practice of forgiveness, 
because we can't go into all the rest of our conversations angry and upset that I'm a disadvantaged person or angry and upset that my ancestors were oppressors or angry and upset for whatever. And I remembered your story very powerfully, Mike, when, when you got straight on your father's um, story in that line of brothers who were all killed in the war and you started to understand his trauma and why he did what he did. And then you could reframe that narrative and there was something powerful to take out of the story. So this thing about when we're sitting in the heart space and looking at our own stories and saying, so how do I transform this narrative? How do I shift it to something that moves me? And that's why that picture of my ancestors were there from what's my heritage of pain, suffering, slavery? No. My heritage is of political resistance and leadership and um, pride in identity, dignity. And I want to take that forward as a legacy. And so the work I'm doing is rooted. In my view, the work I'm doing gives me joy because it's rooted in that. Honey, that's fantastic. And what a great place to end. And I already with having people say, you know, they've got to go, but brilliant call. So I definitely want to thank you so, so much for, for the time that you've given today and and everything like that. Now I know we have a video to to end with, so how about I put that on as a as a way at, and allow it whilst I'm doing that, you can have your final words. But uh, everybody, give Honey a big round of applause. That was fantastic. Thank you. That's fine. Thanks, Vivian. You've been a brilliant audience, and um, I just want to to share the link in the chat. So that if anybody is interested in finding out more about the, um, the course that um, I'm offering, because I run another one in March, then please do visit the link and find out more or share it with your friends and they can give me a call and we can just talk about it. And um, yeah, thanks, we Mike. Play the video. I'm not going to say yeah, much more because the video speaks powerful volumes about what the message the actually on, is. Um, on the, on and whoever can stay for it, please do. Yep, so here we go. Thanks, honey.
seven billion So many different races and religions And it all comes down to one How far will we have to go before we learn the lesson? Gandhi was a Hindu, Martin Luther King, a Christian You're on mute. It's magnificent. Wow. Thank you. You're on mute, Mac. <laughs> Still away. You're on mute. That was beautiful. You're still on mute. Perfect. Now, finally, I, I clicked twice, but now I'm off mute. So <laughs> thank you so much, Hani, for, for being here thank today. You. And we really, really appreciate you and everything you've talked about. So, and thanks, everybody, for being on the call. We'll have another fantastic call next week. We'll see you somewhere around the world. Bye. Bye-bye.